We're going to look a little bit this morning, um, take a break from Romans, just for uh, this week. And uh, next week uh, be the last Sunday that we're here for to our trip. And uh, so we'd appreciate your, your prayers for us as we prepare to go and everybody that's going on the missions trip. I look forward to ministering to those folks over there. And uh, so this morning, uh, I just thought I'd share a little bit about cultivating a thankful heart. And uh, sometimes this is something that as Christians, um, we almost take for granted. Uh, And what I mean by this is we have so much to be thankful for in so many different parts of our lives, whether it's our salvation, whether it's family, friends, um, Thanksgiving's coming up. So you'll be spending time, no doubt, with family and friends. And um, that's a good thing, I hope, around the, the dinner table. Keep the conversation positive. <laughs> but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Christians, I think, really struggle with the idea of um, not being grateful with everything that God has blessed us with. And in so many different parts of Scripture, just a way of introducing this, um, we're told that we should have hearts of thanksgiving, that we should be willing to um, have a, a spirit of thanksgiving in our hearts. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, uh, 10, um, the Apostle Paul writes this, in verse 9, he says, we must, not, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Not grumble, do not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You can see God takes grumbling and ingratitude and things like that pretty seriously. And um, we're going to be looking today in a portion of the Old Testament in Second Samuel, but we saw in Romans, as we were going through Romans, in chapter 1, remember that way back, I don't know how long ago that was, but Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 21, you notice it's talking about God's wrath upon the earth, on unrighteousness, and in verse 21 it says this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or what? What's it say? Give thanks. They didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sometimes we need to be reminded that our hearts should be thankful, that we should go through the exercise of being thankful on a daily basis. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul writes that we should give thanks, what, in everything, that was the theme of our, of our uh, Peninsula Praise the other night, of giving thanks. And not in everything only, but for all things. And see, as those who are delivered from the enemy, from the power of darkness in our lives, Colossians 1.12 says that we should joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. And so it's so, so vital that we don't take our many blessings for granted. 
And as believers, we should have a spirit of thanksgiving. We should have a, a joy in our lives as a result of being believers and Christians, having our sins forgiven. Uh, David himself was called, what, a man after God's own heart. All right, And he was a thankful man. And so if you look back at 2 Samuel, all the way in the Old Testament there, 2 Samuel, And look at verse or chapter seven. This kind of talks a little bit about thankfulness. This this chapter, and uh, we want to look at how we can really produce a heart of thanksgiving, producing a thankful heart. Now, a little bit of background on David himself. David here basically consolidated his kingdom. He had brought the ark. He placed it in a tent in Jerusalem. Um, He's built a palace for himself. And while all this war was going on with Israel's enemies, and they're not over yet, um, Here in chapter 7, they kind of had a little breather in the fighting, a little break. And during this period of calm, David began to think, well, wait a minute. I'm dwelling in a palace, and God is dwelling in a tent. (laughs) What's wrong with this picture? There's something wrong here. And so David wanted to build, what, a house for God. That seems like a pretty noble desire. He wanted to, he felt maybe a little guilt. He's living in this palace and they're they're going to worship the God. Their God in a tent. And they thought, well, wait, this doesn't seem right. And so his desire was to build a house for God. And at first, his friend, his prophet, Nathan, says, yeah, go ahead. Sounds like a good idea, David. Let's do it. But then as you read through this, and we can't go through the whole thing for time's sake, but that night God spoke to that prophet, Nathan. And he said, you know what? I want you to prohibit David from building this house for God or the temple. But God also tells Nathan to tell David that God will build a house for David. (laughs) And that David's house and kingdom will endure forever. Look at what it says in verse 16 of first, or 2 Samuel chapter 7. It says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This chapter deals with what we call the Davidic covenant. God promises that the Messiah will come from David's uh, ancestors, his, his descendants. And David's response was basically an incredible uh, gratitude to God. Now, you might think, well, who wouldn't be <laughs> giving thanks? I mean, here he is. He's a king, first of all, right? And uh, he's, God's giving him this promise. Why wouldn't he? But you have to really understand what's going on here. You have to recognize that David had this dream of building this temple for God. 
And what did God do? He squashed David's dream. I don't know if you're here this morning, you ever had one of your dreams squashed. <laughs> it's not a fun thing to go for, go through. And it was a very realistic dream for David. It wasn't something that he couldn't have done. I mean, David probably pictured this beautiful building and all these worshipers and the Lord being magnified and glorified and lifted up. He wanted to do this great work for God. And God said, you know what? No. You ever been there? You want to do something for God? And God just says, no, he shuts the door. Sometimes that's a hard place to be. And instead, he promised David something that David would not even see in his own lifetime. Something that was future. That the Messiah would come through his lineage. And that promise was not fulfilled until a thousand years later when Jesus Christ was born. And it really won't be totally fulfilled completely until the future millennial, millennial reign of Christ when he comes back to rule and reign on this earth. I mean, that should put David's perspective a little bit, uh, his thankfulness in a different light, you might say. Because, you know, if you've ever had God shut the door in your face, it's very easy to become disappointed. It's very easy to become discouraged. It's very easy to become disgruntled. It's very easy to become depressed. But he was overwhelmed with gratitude. And maybe David does have something to teach us here about thankfulness. Especially when God says no to our plans. And so, I wrote there in your outline, first of all, you must root you must be rooted in God's sovereign grace if you're going to have a thankful heart. A thankful heart comes from focusing on the sovereign grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on God the Father. See, David's focus was what, upon himself? No, it was upon God. It was upon God's purpose. It was upon God's sovereign grace. And so there's three characteristics here of a, of a thankful heart, to cultivate a thankful heart. First of all, you have to focus on God and not yourself. That's a tough thing to do because we're all prone, right, to focus on ourselves. We're number one. It's what we want that matters. I mean, think of where David was at here. He was the king of Israel after years of, of hardship. He defended all these enemies from Israel. Here he was established in this capital city, in this nice palace, comfortable. He was powerful. He was famous. He had a lot of servants. It's very easy for him to be self-focused. He could have got caught up with enjoying the good life. He could have had no concern for the things of God. But you know what? That wasn't his attitude. Instead, his thoughts, his actions, his attitude was turned toward the Lord and his purpose. The Bible says that he had a burden for God. He had a burden for God to be central in his nation. For God to be worshipped by, what, his people. 
And he wanted to build this temple, not just to look back and say what I've done. No, he wanted to build a temple which elevated the Lord to his proper place. And really, he didn't rest content while God's house was not a reality. It was always something in the back of his head. But David's heart was focused on God, not on his plans, not on his purpose, not on himself. So even when God said no to David's dream of building God's house, David was overwhelmed with gratitude for God's sovereign grace toward him. I think one of the reasons that we, one of the many reasons really, that we as Christians suffer from being ungrateful is that we're so self-focused. We just can't get our minds off ourselves. We tend to pursue our own fulfillment. We tend to pursue our own comfort, our own happiness. I mean, the main dominant theology in American Christianity puts man and his happiness at the center. That's what it does. Instead of God and his glory. It all matters what I can get from it. Well, what's Jesus going to do for me? What felt needs is Jesus going to meet for me? Then maybe I'll consider your Jesus. And that even creeps into the church. You know, there's a theology out there that teaches this, that God exists to meet our needs. Have you ever heard this? Well, Christ died for us because we're worthy. Hello? I've heard evangelists say that. So we have people who really by nature are self-centered. They're coming to Christ to get the quote abundant life, (laughs) which they think is their right to have which they somehow assume will fulfill all of their desires and all of their needs. And they've never been broken over their sin. They never once repented of their sin, especially the sin of their own self-centeredness. They think somehow God forgave them through Christ, and you know what? They deserved it. And then they become very disappointed when God doesn't do what they want them to do. Or what they maybe think that he promised to do. See, we, we're, the problem with our, our churches today is they're filled with people who are there to get God to solve their problems. The only reason they're there is to, to get God to make them happy. That's it. Bottom line. I mean, do they want their problems solved so they can more effectively glorify And serve God? I don't think so. No, they want their problems solved so they can enjoy a happy, happy, happy life. Your best life now. See, unlike David, they have no burden for God. They have no burden for God's purpose. They have no burden for God's plan. They're only concerned about themselves. And to be honest, we all go there at times, right? But there are people that live there. 
instead of being focused on God, they're focused on trying to get God to meet their own needs for their own gratification. They're focused on themselves. I mean, that's not what Jesus taught, beloved. When you look through the New Testament, that's the polar opposite of what Christ taught. Jesus never said, if anyone wants to follow me, I'll meet his every need, and so you can just live a happy, happy life if you just come and follow me. A life of blessing, a life of pure happiness. No, Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him first what? Deny himself. Why do you ever think why Jesus said that? Because he knew it was our first kind of proclivity to go after ourselves, to follow ourselves. To make ourselves number one. So he said, you want to follow me? Then you need to, first of all, deny yourself. And then secondly, in case you didn't understand the first part, take up your cross. The cross wasn't the little gold thing you ring around your neck. It was an instrument of death. If you saw a man back in Jesus' day carrying a cross, you knew within hours he was going to be dead. He was subject to a condemning, horrible death on a cross. He said, so if you want to follow me, first deny yourself and then take up your cross and then you can follow me. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels shall save it. See, our logic doesn't work in that environment. We can't get our mind around that. You mean, okay, wait, if I try to save my life, I'll lose it, but if I just give up my life, then I'll save it. Yes, that's what he's saying. See, if somehow we can get that into our heads every day when we get out of mornings, just say, Lord, you know what? It's not what I want today, but it's what you want. And if it's not what I want, I'm okay with that because you know best. You got a plan and a purpose for me today. Lord, just help me to walk in that plan, whether I like it or not. See, that's the kind of prayer we need to be praying every day. See, if you want to be a thankful person, you have to get your focus off yourself. You have to get your focus off your own happiness. You have to put your focus on what? God, on his purpose. And his great purpose through the gospel. If we focus on God, if we focus on his purpose, you know what? He's going to meet your needs. He's going to graciously do that. If we focus on self, what happens? We come up empty. We come up empty every time. I mean, I can't count the times, so many times. Where it's been like, wow, you know, the checkbook's not adding up. (laughs) And it's like, you know what? I just continue to trust God. And you know what? He always comes through. Always. So you have to focus on God, not yourself. Secondly, you have to be willing to be submissive to God's sovereign purpose. This kind of goes along with the first one when you think about it. I mean, here's David. He wants to build this temple for God, not for himself. And God says no. Reminded of a friend in college. All he wanted to do is be a missionary. All he wanted to do is give up his life and go to a foreign field and be a missionary. You know what? He never got to do that. Never got to do it. 
Luckily, he was grounded in the word. He had his heart submissive to God's sovereign purpose. And even though that was his number one desire, that's what he went to school with. He ended up teaching at a little Bible college out in the middle of nowhere. Guess what he taught? He taught missions. Which was kind of like a double-edged sword, if you think about it. Always wanted to do this. And he had to teach all these kids that were going out to the mission field. Hearing about all their stories. And he never got to go. I remember years later, I talked to him one time on the phone. And I said, hey, how'd that mission thing ever work out? You're not going to believe it. He said, I think I've had more effect on the mission field just training these kids. Even though my desire is still to go. (laughs) Why? Because he was submissive to God's sovereign purpose. It didn't matter what he wanted. See, it's not like David was desiring something that was wrong here. You know, I mean, sometimes we get off on the wrong track. We want something that's fleshly and sinful. And, you know, we know that God doesn't want us to have it. But here, David is wanting something that's positive. It's something that's good. He didn't want something for himself. He didn't want a new addition to his palace. (laughs) That's not what he was asking God for. He didn't want more money. He wanted to build a house for God. And because he was a man after God's own heart, his motives were pure. But God said no. Now, it's true that God wrapped his no with a bunch of other promises (laughs) that were pretty nice promises. But nevertheless, he didn't get to do what he wanted to do. What did David do in response? One commentator says, well, let's think, first of all, what he could have done, but he didn't do. What could have David's response have been, but it wasn't? He could have allowed this disappointment to grow to a point of depression. He could have locked himself in his palace and said, you know what, I'm done. God, I wanted to do something for you. I thought it was the right thing. Everybody else thought it was the right thing. And you said no. I quit. He could have sulked. He could have felt sorry for himself. Could have had a kind of attitude, we've probably all been there. You know, Lord, you see if I ever try to do anything for you again. Have you ever been there? I have. (laughs) He could have turned to all the pleasures of his palace. He could have become so self-indulgent just to soothe his hurt feelings. His disappointed heart. But instead, what did he do? He worshipped God. He was overwhelmed with gratitude for all that God had done on his behalf. He submitted to God's sovereign purpose. And he was willing to be used however God wanted to use him. See, the key to David's response is seen in the way David viewed God. How he viewed himself in God's sight. Look at Verse 18 in 2 Samuel 7. 
It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And what did he say? Hey, who do, you th- who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? No, he said, Who am I, O Lord? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Look at verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Notice the words he's using there. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Look at verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears. Look at verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. Look at verse 28. And now, O Lord God, are you getting the picture? Verse 29. For you, O Lord God. See, in this short prayer here, David calls God, O Lord God. What's that mean? It means sovereign Lord. He's acknowledging that God is in control. He's not. And he also just raises up, he extols the God's great in verse 22, verse 26. We already read verse 22, verse 26. And your name will be magnified forever. Verse 27, for you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. See, he goes on and on, and he magnifies the name of Lord of the Lord. And he also understands the sovereign choice of Israel as God's people in verse 23, 24. In this text, it's interesting because... David refers to himself not as the king, but as what? Your servant. Isn't that interesting? He does it in verse 19. He does it in 20, 21, 25, 26, 27 twice, 28, and 29 twice. See, David wasn't caught up in his title. He wasn't caught up in who he was. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on God. And he was submissive to God's sovereign plan. Why? Because he saw God as the sovereign of the universe. And he saw himself simply as God's servant, a tool that God could use. So therefore, he could commit himself, submit himself and, and be thankful when God's plans maybe ran contrary to his own plans. Let me ask you this morning, what do you do? When God's plans run contrary to your plans. See, the the test of thankfulness, beloved, is not when God does what you want him to do. That's not a test. The test of thankfulness is when God says no to your plans. Even when those plans are maybe to further his purpose. They're not bad plans. They may be good plans. They may be honoring plans to him. But he says no to them. To be thankful when 
You've got to see God as the sovereign and yourself as his servant. So that you submit to him. Because you realize he's God and what? You're not. So a thankful heart is focused on God, not self. A thankful heart submits to God's sovereign purpose. And then thirdly there, a thankful heart, to cultivate that, we're overwhelmed by God's sovereign grace. I mean, when Nathan kind of outlines God's covenant promises to David in this text, David kind of blows his mind. I mean, it just blows his mind. He's blown away. Look at what he does in verse 18. It says, When King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? See, this was a prayer. He was praying to the Lord. It's one of the only places really in the Bible that we're told that someone sat down to pray. (laughs) That tells you something about what David felt at that point. You ever get that phone call? It's maybe, it could be good. It could be bad. But before they tell you what they're going to tell you, what do they say? Hey, you know what? You better sit down. You've just inherited a million dollars. <laughs> or something bad. <laughs> but they want you to sit down. Why? It's, it's kind of a somber moment. Well, David here sat down and he went before the Lord. And he was just blown away. He was stunned. David wanted to build this house for God, but God said, no. You know what, David? I'm going to build a house for you. (laughs) And David's response is like, who am I? We just looked at grace. I think it was last week or the week before. And we understand grace is God's unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. There's a lot of definitions of grace, but that's probably one of the better ones. Unmerited favor. That's what David says here. Who am I? In other words, why am I receiving this grace from you, Lord? I am totally unworthy. That's his attitude to receive it. If I get it because I'm worthy, guess what? It's not grace. It's not grace. That's what we just looked at last week in Romans chapter 11. If I can do anything to earn this, it's not grace. See, grace is... The sovereign act of God totally apart from human effort or human will. And grace is one of those things that as human beings it's hard for us to understand. Because it's not in the custom of how we operate. Look at what he says in verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. What did he mean? This is not how we usually do it. (laughs) This is something new, God. Grace is hard to grasp because it's not within our custom. We're, we're, especially here in the United States, we're used to a system that says, you know what, you work hard and you earn a wage. 
If you don't work hard, you don't get a wage, well, guess what? There's going to be consequences. We understand effort versus reward. See, but grace is not something that's a wage or it's a reward. It's something that's a gift. It stems from the very nature of God. It doesn't come out of our efforts. See, and that's what so many times before people come to Christ, they have a hard time understanding the gospel. Because they walk away and say, no, wait a minute. Okay, I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to hell. And you're saying God wants to forgive my sin and take me to heaven? Yes. Why? (laughs) What are they thinking? You know, there's no free lunch here. Nothing's free in life. That's what they're thinking. So you're telling me that I just received this gift and God forgives me of everything and I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteed heaven? And not only that, but past, present, future sins, everything? And I don't have to do anything for it? Nothing? They just scratch their head. They oh, I don't understand that. And we've all been there before we were believers. It was hard for us to understand, probably. Grace is totally unmerited favor. And when you understand that, when you understand that God saved you, not because of who you are, not because of what you look like, not because of your family or your job, He just saved you. Why? Because he wanted to. Wow. If that doesn't motivate your heart to be thankful, if that doesn't fill your heart with thanksgiving toward God, I don't know what will. So grace is unmerited, but it's also favor. It's unmerited favor. What does that mean? That God gives us Favor, he gives us abundant goodness. Why? Because he wants to. We don't deserve it. What do we deserve? We deserve his wrath. We deserve his judgment. But God, who is infinitely wealthy, has opened up, the Bible says, the treasures of heaven. And he's poured out all these treasures, all these blessings upon us. I mean, that's, that's tough for us to understand sometimes. Well, how does this kind of flesh out in David's life here? Well, verses 8 and 9 and verse 18, look at what he says in verse 8 and 9. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. Remember, he was a shepherd. That you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then look all the way down to verse 18. Then King David's response was, wow, you really going to do this for me? I mean, stop just for a moment and consider God's greatness, His grace, His abundant blessing for you. First of all, look at the favor in the past. That's what David was doing there. 
Maybe some of you had a recent past. Maybe you were recently converted. Others, maybe the past goes back a long time. Sometimes after we're a believer a long time, we forget what our past was like. That's why the New Testament tells us over and over and over again, don't forget where you came from. We once were like that. We once were darkened in our minds. We didn't have a proper understanding of God. Whether you're brought up in church or in a bar, you look back at your past and you say, wow, you know what? God has been gracious to me. He rescued me out of that miry pit of sin. Because the Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ by grace. What? You have been saved. See, God looks at our past and he says, Yeah, that's done. <laughs> Forgiven. Forgiven. Let's move on. Remember that the next time you bring up something from your past. That God wants to simply, you know what? He wants you to move on. He doesn't want you to be held captive by well, what went on in your childhood or your parents or your brother or sister or whoever else. He's going, yeah, it's done. You're a new creature in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. So let's just kind of move on here. Don't be using your past as an excuse for your present day bad behavior. That's not biblical, beloved. Now, there are consequences. You may have some nightmares. You may have some problems here and there. But you know what? God is sufficient to transform your mind. See, I'm not saying that those don't affect you. Please understand. I'm not trying to be insensitive to that. I'm just saying don't allow those experiences to rule and reign in your life even today. Because God wants you to be an overcomer in Christ. And this is what he says, secondly, God's favor in the present. 8b, he says, following the sheep and you should be prince over my people Israel. God makes this astounding promise to establish David's kingdom forever. This was only partially fulfilled in Solomon and the other kings of David's lineage. It was and is even yet to be completely fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born, by the way, in the lineage of David, who will rule on the throne of David in his millennial kingdom. Stop and think of, stop and think of that. He deals with the present. He deals with the future. I mean, you might be saying, you know what? My present, I'm not a king. I'm not even a boss. (laughs) I'm really low on the totem pole at my job. But you know what? Stop and think of God's grace in your life. Think of Ephesians 2.6. But God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. See, that's our present day reality. We're called to exercise authority. The authority of our risen 
Lord and Savior here on earth over all the spiritual forces of darkness all around us. Don't ever forget who you are in Christ, beloved. If you forget that or you get confused about that, that, that's not going to work out well for you as a believer. Constantly be reminding, reading verses that points out who you are in Christ. And then his future here, he made this, this promise that, I, like I said, to establish his kingdom forever. Stop and think about your future. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7 says, In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's what our future looks like. I mean, you can't even begin to fathom what God has planned for you in the future. None of us can. But his grace, we're surrounded by it. Grace rescued us from our sinful past. Grace sustains us in the present at this exalted level of living in which we're, we're called to live. And grace will preserve us for a glorious future. I mean, when you come and you contemplate God's grace, it should just knock you to the floor. You should just go, wow. Just being overwhelmed by his tremendous grace. A thankful heart is overwhelmed by God's sovereign grace. A thankful heart is focused on the sovereign grace of God. A thankful heart submits to his sovereign purpose and reveals his sovereign grace. Well, what does that leave us? See, the first part of this study was kind of dealing with the foundation. Right? Where, where does this thankfulness come from? Well, it comes from something that's rooted in what we just talked about. But if you're rooted in what we just talked about, guess what? There's, there's a fruit that's produced in our lives. A thankful heart produces the fruit of seeing the promises of God come to fruition in your own life. I mean, please understand, even though God had promised to do all these great things for David... David did not take these promises for granted. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says in verse 25, And now, O Lord, confirm forever your word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. He says in verse 26, And your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, verse 27, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And then he says there in verse uh, 29, Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall, come, shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. See, the fruit of our thanksgiving, of understanding who we are rooted in, in our Christian experience, is basically the idea that God will fulfill his promises concerning you. If he is sovereign and he'll accomplish his purpose, some people say, well, then why do I even have to pray about it? Why do anything? 
I just know that that's part of the way that God brings about his sovereign purpose is through the prayers of his people. Is God sovereign? Yes. Does he work through the prayers of his people? Yes. Does that make any sense? No. Be the first to tell you. I don't get that. But God tells you you're not going to get it. The God of the Bible says, you know what? My ways are not your ways. They're far above. You're not going to understand. They're incomprehensible to you, a mere mortal, stained by sin. You're not going to get it. But we're still called to trust. God expects his servants who are recipients of his grace to take his promises and to turn them into thankful prayers for his glory. He says in verse 25 and 26, Do as, you're, as you have said, Lord, that your name be magnified. See, this isn't the only promise that God gave. Um, in Matthew chapter 28, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he, he made a promise concerning his own house, the church. Matthew 16, verse 18, he says, you know what? Jesus said, I will build my, what? My church. And guess what? The gates of hell, the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. They will not overpower it. That's his promise. You know, people say all the time, well, you know, are you, are you worried about the church? Are you, are the growth? I said, no, I'm really not. Well, don't you want to see more people? Yeah, that'd be great to see more people. But I don't know what God's plan is. What if God's plan is to have less people? I'm always reminded about what Dr. John MacArthur said. He said, you know what? Jesus said, I will build my church. I don't want to do anything to compete with Jesus, frankly. See, we just need to be obedient to what God has told us to do. To be in his word. To be people of prayer. To come together for fellowship. See, when we do the basic things, then God blesses. He expects his people whose hearts are filled with thankfulness to be filled with thankfulness as they really think about his sovereign grace in their lives. To take that promise... It says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it by our Lord and Savior. And you know what? Turn that into a prayer. Lord, build your church. Erect your temple out of the lives of this community in order that, you know what? Your name will be magnified forever. We need a bunch of believers. We need a bunch of warriors like David whose hearts are filled with gratitude because of his sovereign grace who will come together, unite together to entreat the Lord to fulfill his promise by building the church that he's entrusted to us right here in this community. Trust me, people are looking for authenticity. People are looking for truthfulness when it comes to Christianity because there's so much out there that it's a shell game. It's a bunch of entertainment. And see, when you offer them the truth of the word of God, in a very real way, I was talking with someone the other day. And they were asking me a bunch of questions about our church. 
And they said, well, you know, I'm a progressive young person. What would I, you know, I'm, I'm of the progressive thought. And, you know, he kept on using this progressive word. And finally I said, well, what, what do you mean by progressive? I said, look, I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Our church is a conservative church. We believe the Bible. We believe there's only way, one way of salvation, that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're interested in what we believe about homosexual marriage, we're against it. If you're wondering what we believe about abortion, we're against it. And the reason is simply because God's word is against it. But I said, don't let that stop you from coming. You know, that's just a ruse from the enemy to get your focus off the real thing. And I went on to tell this individual, I said, you know what? The Bible says that one day we're all going to stand before a holy God. And guess what? Newsflash. He's not going to ask your view about homosexual marriage. He's not even going to ask your view about abortion. He's going to say, what did you do with my son? Who is the Lord Jesus Christ to you? That's the central theme. And this person, when we were done with our little conversation, said, wow, I never thought about that. I don't know what God's going to do with that. But you know what? I thought, I'm not going to beat around the bush and kind of, well, you know, we we embrace everybody. You know, we affirm everybody. (laughs) Had a homosexual individual ask me, well, would I be welcoming your church? I said, sure. First of all, it's not my church. I said, secondly, yes, you would be welcome. I would? Yeah. We've had people of like that before in our congregation that came. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Then he goes, would you affirm me? I said, well, you as one of God's creation, maybe. Sure. Well, would you affirm my homosexuality? Absolutely not. Well, see, there you go. (laughs) Well, I'm just being honest with you. The only reason I'd say no to that is because God doesn't affirm it. And if you're really interested in what God says, I'd be love to sit down with the Bible and show you. Well, I don't know about that, you know. See, we got to stop kind of being so afraid to speak the truth into people's lives. Because when we speak the truth into people's lives, today a lot of people go, whoa, I never heard that before. You're really going to just tell that to me the way you just told it to me? You're not going to package it up with a big bow and make it feel, No. You know, the the gospel doesn't need to be catered. It doesn't have to be changed. We're simply the servant that brings the food to the table. We don't need to mess with the recipe. See, God has shown his grace to us, beloved, so many ways. We need to be reminded that we are to be thankful. I just want to read in conclusion Psalm 53, or Psalm 57, excuse me. 57, Psalm 57. This is when David was fleeing from Saul and he was in a cave. And here's what he says. Psalm 57. He says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to you, God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose in me. For me, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. 
God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp words. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds be exalted. O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. Father, we thank you for this word from you this morning. Lord, there's a a promise of God for every part of of our lives. Some here may need freedom from guilt. 1 John 1 9 says he promises to forgive if you confess your sins. Maybe there's people here who are lonely today in their life. Matthew 28 20 says that I'm with you always. Maybe you're here and you lack assurance. Maybe you need some assurance. John 10, verse 27 and 28 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Maybe you're troubled for whatever reason here this morning. John 14, 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. Maybe you're dealing with financial pressures as so many of us are. This area of the country in which we live. Matthew chapter 6. Do not be anxious then. Saying what we shall eat. What we shall drink. How are we going to clothe ourselves. For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly father knows that you need of all these things, but seek first what? His kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Maybe you're dealing with temptation, powerful temptations. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to men. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation, he will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. See, whatever you need here this morning, beloved, it's covered by a promise of God. No matter how overwhelming your circumstances, you can have hope. You can be filled with thanksgiving because our God is a sovereign God who always acts in grace toward us. Father, I ask today that you would speak these truths to the hearts of your people. Lord, I pray that if there's any here this morning who've yet to put their trust or faith in you, Lord, that you'd convict them of their sin, that you would show them their need of a Savior, and that you would show them that Jesus Christ is that Savior. There's only one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he fully provided for our forgiveness on Calvary. 
when he went to die and he was raised on the third day, that was God saying, you met the need. You fulfilled what was needed to be fulfilled. And he raised him from the dead. Father, as believers, I pray that we go out into this lost and dying world filled with sin and not look down our self-righteous noses to people who have yet to come to Christ, but, Lord, that we would be servants even to them, that you would powerfully reveal to them through our lives, through our words, through our deeds, through our thoughts even, Christ and the forgiveness that they can have if they simply come to the Savior. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.